Revelation chapter 7 in the Word of God. We are uh, so thankful that we have made it thus far. And today we're going to be covering verses chapter 7, 1 through 8. We're going to be introduced to a unique group of people that God is going to use in a mighty, mighty way during the period of time in the tribulation. I was laughing uh, this week while we were at the beach over a lot of things. Um, But last weekend, we uh, watched a NASCAR race. And um, if anybody here likes NASCAR, um, I I like to watch NASCAR on occasion. don't watch it as much as I did uh, before. But there was this huge crash that took out a lot of cars. I mean, there were cars turned everywhere, you know, kind of one of those, the big ones that happens in in NASCAR. Uh, That's the reason a lot of non-race fans watch the race is to see the big one. Don't want anybody to get hurt, but we do want to see some amazing sparks, fire flames, damaged cars, and all those stuff. And uh, so so there was this picture, and it's a meme, not a meme, I always get it wrong, my children correct me, a meme of this, all these cars, right, turned sideways, smoke everywhere, I mean, I took out the whole field, and uh, the caption, and it says something about first year seminary students studying eschatology. Now, eschatology is the doctrine of last things, okay, so eschatology is what's going to happen at the end times, and so the idea is, you know, you go to seminary, just like I did, uh, you think you know it all. You think you know all the answers, only to find out that not only do you not know the answers, I didn't even know what questions to ask. Right? And so, it usually takes a little, a little season to be humbled and to, uh, to work through those things. So, um, uh, when we're talking about these things, there are so many different uh, interpretations, um, and yet there's the one true interpretation. And you're going to decide, when, it, when you come to studying God's Word, you're going to have to decide on an approach uh, in terms of your interpretation. Because you see, in all reality, there is only one interpretation, one true, accurate, perfect interpretation of God's Word. But based on that one true interpretation, there are infinite number of applications. In other words, you always hear me say this, in light of what we've studied in God's Word, what would God want us to do with it, right? So what is the question that we ask? Well, in this particular passage of Scripture that we deal with, and it, it, a lot of times uh, the whole way that we're approaching this is I have chosen, uh, based on biblical conviction and based on my study of God's Word, I believe based on the example of Jesus, based on the example of the way the Bible interprets other Scripture and things along those lines, we follow or I follow, and therefore by way of sitting under my sermons, you follow with me along the trail of the normal grammatical, historical, literary understanding of God's Word. In other words, 
we take God's Word to mean what God's Word says. Now, we allow for similes, we allow for metaphors, we allow for things of those such that would be common and normal to the language uh, uh, that's there. For example, when Jesus says, I am the door, no one's literally looking for Jesus hanging on hinges and swinging. We know that that is uh, an image. Uh, in our message today, we're going to see some things that says that this is like that and this is like that. And the reason that is, is because um, as, we, as we get into it, what we're going to see is, is that we're looking at a vision. And in these visions, there are um, um, likenesses to the reality. And sometimes we're unable to see reality for what it is we have to see through similes metaphors and things that are like something else let me just give you the let me just give you the example we're going to look at a passage in Ezekiel in just a few minutes where it says that I saw something like I saw in a vision like the glory of God Ezekiel would have to be something see something in that vision like the glory of God because what would happen if Ezekiel saw the glory of God he would be consumed like that and would not live to write it and to tell about it. So in the normal, normal grammatical historical literary understanding of Scripture, it basically means that we take the Bible as what it says. We let the Bible interpret the Bible. We don't apply spiritual meaning. We don't bring things out of the sky and say this means this and this means that. We let the Bible speak for itself. When it comes to interpretation, it comes to understanding of the Bible, we look first of all for the answers in the immediate text and context. And then we look in the particular book. We looked in the particular testament. We look in the Old Testament. And we look at the entire Bible to interpret. We let Scripture interpret Scripture as much as as possible without applying things that are unrelated to the text of Scripture. We're going to see that today when we come to Revelation chapter 7 because we're going to be introduced to the 144,000. Now, you may be thinking, now wait a minute, we have been studying the sealed judgments of God. So we looked at seal one, setting up the, the system for the Antichrist to come in, a brief period of peace and safety. Seal two, the peace was taken away. Judgment has come. They had a great sword. They were killing each other. There were famines. There are all the things that we've seen. And you told us that there was a scroll with seven seals, and we've only broken six seals. Why are we not talking about the seventh seal? Maybe the salt air got to me a little bit uh, this week, and we, we're skipping it. No. There is what's called an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. In fact, in each of the series of judgments, and we've talked about there are three, at least three series of judgments. There are the sealed judgments. There would be the, the trumpets and then the bowls. In each of those, there is at one point in the pouring out of God's wrath an interlude. There's a, there's a break. There's a ceasing or a halting of the judgment to come in order for God to work and move and do the things that He does. 
And so what we've come to is, is we have come to this particular interlude, interlude in the sealed judgments. Now, now, just to show you that this is an interlude, I want you to look with me in chapter 6. So there in, in verse 1, we have the first seal, the rider on the horse. And then we have the second seal at verse 3, which was war. The third seal, famine, down in verse 5. Down in verse 7, we have the fourth seal, where death and Hades come. The fifth seal, we talked about the martyrs. The sixth seal is terror uh, that comes so much so that they were crying out um, uh, for the rocks and the mountains to fall on us and hide us from the presence. And then chapter 7 is an interlude to introduce us to two groups of people that we need to know about. And then look what happens in chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal. So we are going to come back to the seventh seal, but basically in the midst of the devastation that has already taken out in this first series of judgment, probably, approximately, and notice those words, this is our best guess, this is our understanding based upon theologians and scholars and our understanding of God's Word, approximately 40% of the world's population has already uh, been killed. Um, They've already been done away with here. And before we get to the eighth or the seventh seal in chapter eight, there is this respite, if you will. And there is this interlude. Let's look at it and let's understand some things. Revelation chapter seven, and I'm going to begin in verse number one. The Bible says, And I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And what I think we're going to do is we're going to kind of take these sort of verse by verse and section by section. I want to deal with things in each of these in each of these areas. We're going to pull other verses and all to help us to understand uh, what it means. So here in chapter 7, at the beginning of this interlude, instead of it being a horseman, instead of it being the seal broken and, and judge, judgment wrath being poured out, after the sixth seal, John in his vision saw four angels. And they're standing, now look at this, standing on the four corners of the earth. Liberal scholars and those who deny um, that the Bible is the Word of God, they point to this verse and they say, Aha! Gotcha! Everybody knows that the world is round. So how in the world can there be corners if the world is round? You can throw this out and therefore you might as well throw the rest of it out because if the Bible is wrong in one area, it can't be trusted in any area and therefore it has no authority whatsoever. And to which I would say, well, today in the world in which we live, people are so smart they think the world is flat. So no, no, that's, no, that's, not the, that's not the argument here today. But these angels, remember, this is a vision, number one. It is a vision. Uh, But secondly, when it comes to these corners, basically this, this, this standing on the four corners of the earth, the four corners of the earth, is an idiom that basically expresses the entire earth. 
It's used several times. It's used several times in the Bible. It's used in Ezekiel chapter 4. It's used in other places as well. And so where do they get the idea of the four corners of the earth? Probably from the compass north, south, east, and west. And basically what it's saying is that the angel standing as far north, as far south, east, west as you can stand. Basically it's saying it covers the entire earth. So beloved, don't throw your Bible out because it uses an idiom. Remember, we we apply the normal normal grammatical and historical literary sense which allows for these things to happen. Metaphors, similes, uh, expressions, where it's warranted. This is in a vision and this is speaking of the directional compass. It's a well-known idiom in biblical times that basically is covering the foundation of the earth. And notice what these angels are doing. These angels are there and they're holding back the four winds of the earth. Now think about this. And this wouldn't be easy. Have you ever been in a place where there was no movement of air whatsoever? How stagnant and how difficult it was. It would be to, to, to deal with that. Imagine that there would be no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. In other words, there would be this strange stillness. There would be this strange silence that would take place. It wouldn't be like it was at the beach this weekend. We're standing this week, we're standing at the beach, and right, you hear the wind blowing, the wind's blowing the waves in, they're doing their things, you're looking at the trees, they're blowing, you go to the mountains and you watch the trees sway and you hear the wind roar through that. Imagine the silence and the stillness of all of those things because these angels would be very, very powerful being to do with power from God to stop the winds from blowing on the earth. And while they were doing that, verse 2, and I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the angels to whom it was granted. Now look at this. To harm the earth and the sea... And here's what he's saying to them. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Now this is interesting. Until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. So in other words, judgment is being poured out and judgment is being poured out. More judgment is coming. Notice the word until. He's not saying stop all judgment. Stop the wrath of God for heaven's sake. He's not saying that at all. He's basically saying wait, stop, hold back until... This segment of people, actually two groups, this segment of people, whoever they are, until these, they're described as bond servants of our God, and they are, what's going to happen is, is these angels are going to go through, because notice what it says, until we have sealed, so they're not sealing themselves, you see that? It's not saying wait until they seal themselves. He says, do not harm until we have sealed 
these bondservants of our God. So this angel is going to be going through the earth and the angel is the one that's going to be sealing these bondservants of our God and sealing them on their forehead in some way. Everybody today that's talking about the mark of the beast or talking about the sealing on the foreheads are looking for some visible sign. And certainly when it comes to the mark of the beast, there will be a visible sign. This is a marking or a sealing that as I'm reading these scholars and theologians, these people probably don't even realize that they have been sealed. They themselves, they didn't just go, Oh, did you feel that? What was that? Well, I've been sealed. Did you not feel that? You must not be sealed. They're probably at this point clueless that this is going around and they're being touched, if you will, by the angel of God sealing them. They may not know themselves that they are sealed, but God knows it. And God knows everything. And so, look at these, these are bond servants. Now, look what happens. Verse 4 And I heard the number of those who were sealed. Now, now, by the way, this is not the first time that God has poured out his judgment and in the middle of pouring out his judgment, stopped and marked some who were, who would be, um, uh, uh, I can't think of the word. Mark some that the judgment would not affect. Who would be excluded from the judgment. We, we see an example of this in, in Ezekiel. Go with me to, to Ezekiel, or you can just listen. I just want to point out a couple of verses. In Ezekiel chapter 1, um, Ezekiel sees a vision of God. And he sees a vision in the likeness of God. And what he sees is, is, is he is, is caught up in a vision. And he sees this vision sort of the, like the divine glory of God. Again, it's like the divine glory of God. It's not the glory of God. And the reason is, is again, as I, as I said, that if he saw the glory of God, then he would have been uh, consumed. You remember in Ezekiel chapter 1, that this is similar to uh, the vision that we saw in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5 as it is describing uh, God and describing the, the different ways uh, of, uh, of God. And it talks about the living creatures and all of those things there. Look down, if you would, in um, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance, look at this, of the likeness of the glory of God. And Ezekiel says, And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and he heard a voice speaking in chapter 2 is the prophet's call. So the glory of God is there. Ezekiel is seeing something like the glory of God. Go over to chapter 8, verse 1. 
Ezekiel chapter 8, um, it came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house, the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. And then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of man from his loins downward. There was the appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward, the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up from earth and brought me, now look at this, in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provoked its jealousy, was located, And notice chapter 8, verse 4. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the appearance which I saw in uh, the plain. Now, Now basically, Ezekiel is carried by vision into the temple, into the Holy of Holies where the glory of God is there. And what God does in in chapter 8 and the rest of chapter 8, He says, even in the temple where my glory is, the, the, the priest and the people are engaged in idolatry and every other form of sin and worship, and they are hiding it and pretending that God can't see it. So they dig into these caves and they see all this sin. The rest of chapter 8 is, is about this. And God is bringing judgment. And God is bringing judgment. So God is telling Ezekiel, and we see this, that that judgment is coming. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed as well. And He's giving them all the reasons this judgment is coming. But now when you get to chapter 9, chapter 9, The Lord in chapter 10, the glory is going to depart from the temple and make its way to the eastern gate and then go up to the eastern sky. And the glory of God has to depart from the temple before it can be destroyed because no one can destroy God and God's temple when His glory is within the temple, it can't be destroyed. So God is going to remove His glory, which is what these early chapters of Ezekiel is all about. But I want you to understand this. Before the judgment comes, and while the judgment, God is, is, is right. He's exposing them. This is a vision of slaughter. Be, look in chapter 9, verse 2. Six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. Among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a riding case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been through the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city. Now look at this. Even through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are committed in its midst. In other words... In Ezekiel, sin is rampant and everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes and engaging in sin the way that they want to engage in. No one is even blushing. No one's even ashamed. They're doing all those things and judgment is coming. But within that culture of sinfulness that is so worthy of the judgment of God coming, God goes through 
And he says, identify those who are sighing and groaning over all the abominations. In other words, there is a segment of people within this culture that is worthy of the judgment of God that that is instead of engaging what the culture is engaged in and doing the things of culture or accepting or being neutral about it, they are sighing and groaning against the abominations. Now, I feel like I've lost some of you, but let me just put this in real practical perspective. We live in an utterly sinful world. And you would agree with me, I'm sure, that there is hardly anything sin-wise that shocks you anymore. Would that be a true statement? And not only have we become desensitized that we're no longer shocked into the depravity of man and what it accomplishes, because we see it over and over and over and time and time again, it is easy for us to accept that this is just the way that it is and no longer sigh about it and no longer groan over it, but just become desensitized even to the abominations that they are in such a way that we no longer even sigh or groan against it, even if we don't participate in it. Does the sinfulness of our world still affect and bother you in such a way that you sigh and groan over the abominations? Or is it, oh well, you can't do anything about it. I'm just going to live my life and let be and whatever happens, happens. This group of people here in Ezekiel chapter 9, in the midst of the sinfulness that had pervaded every area, including the priest of the temple, they continued to sigh and continue to groan over the abominations. And when God's judgment came, this remnant received a mark on their forehead and they were spared from the judgment of God in the midst of the wrath to come. We see this here in Ezekiel chapter 9, and we see the same thing in Revelation chapter 7. Now, how do we know that this is true in Revelation chapter 7? Well, in Revelation chapter 7, these are the bondservants of God on on their forehead. Now look at what it says. I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 were sealed. Now, if you are a Jehovah's Witness... Or if you've talked to a Jehovah's Witness, they will tell you that 100, these 144,000 are Jehovah's Witnesses. In fact, the reason they come, so of all the Jehovah's Witnesses in the world, they believe that only Jehovah's Witnesses are the 144,000. Um, that there are, there, uh, there are no non-JWs in uh, the 144,000. It's all them. And the reason they come and knock on your door is is they want to work their way up the rank so that they might become one of the 144,000. Now, I don't know about you, but in, in studying Revelation verse by verse from chapter 1 all the way up and even reading ahead and looking ahead, I don't see any any... <coughs> 
Jehovah's Witnesses showing up anywhere in Scripture. So they just randomly pull these things, make it apply to what they want it to apply to that makes sense to them. And beloved, if you believe the 144,000 are Jehovah's Witnesses, then like them, your eternal destiny is damnation instead of blessing because they do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. God Himself in the flesh. Others who look at the 144,000, they say that's the church. That's the church. That the church is 144,000. Those who deny the rapture of the church, those who say that the church is not caught up into heaven before all this happened, they look to this and they say these are the bondservants of God. And because other passages in the Bible say that, the, that we as Christians are bondservants of God, that this has to be representative of the church. It has to be the church. Beloved, I believe based on the normal historical grammatical literary understanding of God's Word that the church is not found here on the earth during this time, regardless of the arguments that they make. Other people say, well, the 144,000... Look at, look at what it says. It says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So the 144,000 must be Jews, but the church has replaced the Jews. The church was grafted in. Because the Jews, they crucified Christ. God is done with them. The church replaced the Jews, and they have replacement theology. Replacement theology is very popular in our world today. More and more people are are denying the rapture of the church, denying the the removal of the church prior to the tribulation coming. And what they're saying is, is it can't be the Jews because the Jews, right? They they rejected God. They abandoned Messiah. They killed the Messiah. And they're not in they're not going to be in, in they're not going to be in the land. And if you go back and look in theology books from the uh, 1800s, you will see that that is the predominant understanding of these passages of Scripture, that these can't be the Jewish remnant because God is through with them. The church is placed, replaced Israel, and this is the church. If you take that approach to this particular passage of Scripture, then it requires you to do loop-de-loops with other passages of Scripture that allow for the presence of the Jews and not only allow for, but require the presence of the Jewish population in the end of times. In fact, if you will, just listen to Genesis chapter 49. If you were with us, Genesis chapter 49 verse 1 is the first time that the, word, the, the, the Bible uses the, the phrase the end of the days or in the latter days or in the days to come. And here in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob summoned his sons 
And Jacob's about to die. Now, Jacob's about to die for about 20 chapters in Genesis. I think it's like, you know, he just keeps saying, this is the big one. It's now. It's coming. I'm dying now. I'm dying now. And he never dies. But now he truly is coming to the end. And he is about to die. So Jacob summoned his sons. He said, assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you. Literally, it says, in the end of the time or the end of the days. The things that he says here, so he blesses them, and within this blessing that is an initial blessing upon them there that has fulfillment in the end of the times, we learn some things about what's going to happen at the end. For example, he's talking to Reuben in verse 3. He's talking to Simeon and Levi in verse 5. Now we come to verse 8. Judah, your brother, shall praise you. Your, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son will bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whip. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down like a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? So, in other words, Judah would be as dangerous to challenge as a lion guarding its prey. And then it says, notice it says in verse 9, As a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And so what we see there is we see, we see there that from this this is very Jewish and, and based on the normal understanding and reading of Genesis chapter 49, the 12 tribes of Israel, we would expect them to be around at the end of the time when the Lord Jesus returns. In fact, you already know this because of previous studies that Jesus Himself is the what we saw in Revelation chapter 4, the Lion of the tribe of, not Jehovah's Witnesses, not Lion of the tribe of the church, but the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In fact, John, even being Jewish, is speaking and he's saying, notice verse, well, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The same thing we would we could see if we take time in Numbers 24 uh, that the Israel, the 12 tribes, have to be around at the end of the days. So when we come back to Revelation chapter 7, we're not surprised then when he says the 144,000 who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, what scholars will tell you is they'll say, well, nobody knows what tribe they're from because when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 in Jerusalem, all the records of who belonged to what tribe were destroyed. So the Jews, they don't know what tribe they're from. Some who studied their ancestry, they claim a tribe, they say that they're part of this tribe in there, but there are no records any longer in terms of what lineage and line people belong to and who belongs to what tribe 
all of those records have been destroyed. And therefore, people say it's impossible to know that, notice what it says, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. And on and on and on, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. No one can know what tribe they're from. And therefore, since all those records were destroyed... There is no possible way that we could find 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel because the records have been destroyed. But do you not think that God knows? And who is the one marking these? And who is the one setting these people apart? It's an angel under the direction of God. And the angel is the one who says, just because man lost a record, God didn't lose His record. Nobody's running around doing DNA checks to find out what tribe they're from, though I suppose that they could. That's not going to be necessary because God already knows who they are And beloved, if these are not Jews, then then I don't know. You would have to do all these loop-de-loops to make the the Bible mean something that it doesn't mean. Remember in Revelation chapter 4, how to describe Jesus. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Jewish people have to be present at the end of the times or Genesis 49 is out. Numbers 24, the prophecy of God through Balaam is out. Acts 26 is out where Paul is standing and giving a defense and he says he's holding on to the promise for the Jewish people and the end to come. He expects the Jews to be there. And the Bible affirms that the Jewish people will be present at the end of the days. And among all the Jewish people that are there, not all of them are marked He didn't say mark all the Jewish people, but of all the Jews that are there present in the tribulation, there are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes who have the mark upon their head. From the tribe of Naphtali, verse 6 says 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And so finally, the question would be, Who were the ones then of the Jews who were present on the earth in the tribulation that were sealed? And Revelation 14 gives us some insight to that. So let's look in Revelation 14. We're just introduced to the 144,000 in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. We'll pick up in verse 1. Then I looked... And behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000 having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. You see that? Written on their foreheads. 
And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now look at this. Look, notice verse 3. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. Now look at this new song. Now y'all would think, if you just read and you didn't read Revelation 7, you would think that the 144,000 here would have to be the Baptist in the tribulation. And the reason is, it says, and no one could learn the song. Y'all know how Baptists are with learning new songs. That's not what this is about. The 144,000 were singing a song and no one else outside of the 144,000 could learn the song. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. So there you go. Those of you that can't learn new songs, you're good. You might, you know, you're outside of the 144,000. You might be in trouble, but I, whatever. You work that out. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm teasing, of course. The 144,000, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. And we know they've been purchased from the earth beginning in Revelation 7. And we don't know how long they're going to live. But notice this. Who are these 144,000? These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with marriage necessarily. This is not saying that they are... But, but in terms of they are pure, chaste. They are not married... These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men. Now look at this. As first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Now look at this. And this is also why Baptists can't be excluded. You can't be excluded. I'm teasing, of course. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. In other words, just like in the example of Ezekiel, when the world was engaged in darkness and sin and casting off the bonds and cutting the fetters to the commands of God, there are a group of people who have given them their entire lives marked by God's mark on their forehead, written with the name of the Father and the name of the Son on their forehead. They do not marry. They give themselves entirely to the service of the Lord. And they are, I guess you could use the word, super evangelist, if you will, during the tribulation period. These are the ones that God has raised up and these are the ones that God has marked and the one that God's going to use greatly as His witnesses within the tribulation. And God is the one who is singling them out for their holiness, for their, right, their, their purity, their surrender to God. And if you will, they're not participating in the sin and darkness of the world. 
And God is going to use this group of people, the 144,000. God is going to use them and He's going to use them greatly during this tribulation period as His witnesses. And He's also going to use not only this group of Jews, but there's another group within the tribulation period that God's going to use greatly as well. And we're going to find out who they are next week. Okay? Next week. And so you can sit down and have all of your theological discussions with all of your friends and uh, rest assured that you have more confidence in God's Word and what it says about who these 144,000 are. But beloved, in closing, I want to go back to this point. The purpose of the book of Revelation is not to simply fill your head with knowledge and not to give you answer to people's questions at the end of the day. The purpose is not for you to become an expert on the end time events. The reason we're doing this study is, if you remember, the book of Revelation itself says, Blessed are he who hears these words and he who heeds these words. As I look at this today and I look at my own life and I look at where we are and I look at the world in which we live, the question I have for me is a question I have for you. Are you still sighing and groaning over the brokenness and the sinfulness of our world or have you become so desensitized and complacent to it that you're no longer moved by it at all? Have you come to the place in the world in which we live that we look more like the world or do we look less like the world? Is our chemical makeup, if you will, the same chemical makeup of the world? Then we'll never preserve it. We'll never savor it. We'll never be the salt of the earth if we are just like them. May God call us to be chased after Him. May God call us to be holy and pure. May God raise up within us a righteous indignation that sighs and groans over the world in which we live. And may God awaken our eyes that He would remove the desensitivity from us that we would see the world through the eyes of Jesus and the brokenness that's there. And may we respond appropriately to those things and not just live in our holy huddle as though the world's going to come and do our own thing and we're going to be ratcheted up and going and not give a rip what the world does. May we be about our Father's business and may we be doing everything that we can do to cry out against sin, to cry out against injustice, to stand up for the unborn, to stand up against uh, racial uh, issues. May we be those who will stand up and stand out and not be hypocritical about it, that our lives don't reflect the words that our mouth says. I'm not talking about ranting and raving against the sins of the culture, but I'm talking about grieving and praying over the sins of the culture and confronting it in the way that God calls us to confront it. If these angels under the direction of God were going to come through our city today, and whether it's like Ezekiel and Mark on the forehead, those who are sighing and groaning against culture, or those who are bond servants of God and sold out to Him, my question to you and my question to me today by way of application is this. He's not, we're different, we're the church, I get that. But if, 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 would He... Mark 
you. Because he sees these things in your life. And would he set you apart for some special work and some special task if he were to do that today? Beloved, the answer is you are already set apart for the work of God because He saved you and made you part of the church. You already have the mark of Christ upon you. You've already been set apart. He's already bought you with a price to shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not for us to live hoping that He would mark us. We should live because He already has. Amen. And may God, through the Holy Spirit of God, search us and try us and correct any way within us that is out of line and out of step with who He would want us to be. And may we repent and return and be the people of God that He's called us to be, that we may be salt and light in the generation in which we live. May God do that work among us. And may God set us apart for that work. Let's stand for prayer.